Listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Good morning, everyone. And, and Harry, good morning to you, our station manager. We There's so many soldiers on the battlefield to help us kind of pursue this path of liberation and freedom. And, and regardless of your title and your role, uh, folks are trying to, to pick the cotton and uh, kind of build a collective force of peace and goodwill. And I always like to kind of shout out our station manager, Harry, before it almost every during the, the top of almost every show just to uh just just to, just to model the fact that you got to appreciate people got to thank people and you got to kind of believe that people can help you uh, succeed or really achieve our collective goals it's really a pleasure today this morning to um we can talk about the, the title is telling our story em embracement and pipeline program telling our story embracement and pipeline programs and our guests are Dr. Jeffrey C. Stewart, Reverend Dr. Leroy O. Perry Jr., and Reverend Elvin Clayton. Uh, but we're really, in, in some ways, the title is communing and sharing and inspiring not only this generation, but generations to come. Uh, we're going to do that through a way of talking about uh, industries, education, uh, the pipeline, ladders of success, and how does one do that? And what is our role as agents of change, all of us on the on the planet at this moment? to kind of make sure that we can have peace on earth, goodwill toward women, children, and men to make that more than just a mantra or a phrase, but a reality now and in the future. Um, specifically, Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Stewart is the interim vice, Ch vice chancellor for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and distinguished professor of black studies and the MacArthur Foundation chair at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and might I guess say a Pulitzer Prize winning author. I'll repeat, a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Uh, Reverend Dr. Leroy, Leroy O. Perry Jr. is with us, pastor of St. Stephen's AME Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. And Reverend Elvin Clayton is with us, pastor of Walters Memorial AME Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Uh, today, in terms of an overview, we're talking about, we're going to talk about the uh, pipeline programs, and this that might sound like a mundane term, but yeah, how do we make these connections and this, uh, I would say, quantum connections for folks as they seek to prepare themselves for, to pursue degrees and ultimately perhaps careers in, in the field of medicine. And as we know, this even field of medicine is expanding so much with artificial intelligence, et cetera. But the question remains, how do we support students 
um, that are on this path, that are keeping their eyes on the prize. Uh, Dr. Stewart is here with us to kind of talk about some of the initiatives and innovations and creativity he's been able to sustain and start. Um, and actually, he's dedicated his life. I, I mean, I, I have a joke about this because we've had a chance to know each other for more than 50 years ago. But he's dedicated the, the, the last few decades to uh, students, education, shaping young minds, personally being involved with that, I mean, to, to the intimate degree. So he'll share with us this uh, concept that he's designed about embracement and supporting minority students on college campuses. Dr. Stewart, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. And, and again, so, we so look good to see you, Dr. Ficklin. <laughs> well, no, and uh, <laughs> uh, know that, well, no, I mean, I think you have a, 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 a PhD in community knowledge and empowerment. Yes, yes. I got it to the mill. It was a mill system. Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> and um, that's essentially what is the most important doctorate you can have. Thank you so much, R Reverend Perry. Kind of, kind of kick us off, and because this was your your vision, and we can see how the the tea leaves are now becoming more manifest in terms of our co cohesive communication. But share with us uh, the objective of the telling our story series, and and how um, how today's topic was chosen, and how we really are blessed to have Dr. Stewart with us. Yes, we are definitely blessed to have uh, Dr. Stewart with us. He he, you know, to have somebody as renowned and prolific as. Uh, as Dr. Stewart, I call him Jeffrey. So allow me to call him by his first name. That's mm -hmm. the name his mama gave him. I'm talking like Cornell West now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, I've known Jeff. I mean, he's a Pulitzer Prize uh, author and National Book Club winner. Um, I studied under Blasting Game at Yale in one of the first programs in the country that, that developed a program for African-American studies. And he matriculated, and that that is that is where we are. So, and speaking with um, and tell in terms of telling our story, Jeffrey and I were, were going through some notes mm -hmm. about how young black uh, men and women in who who want to go into higher education, particularly into medicine, how sometimes they are deterred because they are. After getting started on the journey, they don't have any support. And they're often told that, you know, they just don't cut the mustard. And then these young people are left floundering, mm. dealing with depression, dealing with the feeling of being uh, dejected or rejected. And and we we have a program, an exposure program here at Yale. We It's, it's on our third year. And the first year, we had over 800 students who applied. And it's like a four-week program in the summer, mm -hmm. and they meet with you know renowned doctors. They get to talk about you know what they're interested in, and they get some support. And also, you know, to follow that up, they they also get letters of recommendation to schools that they want to go to. So, it, there, there's a gap here. There's a breach in this process. And even though even though we have such a, a successful program, it is not successful when you look at those who didn't make the mustard, mm. and those who didn't cut the grade, those who we, we left out. And um, that's what we're talking about today. How do we how do and, and, and Jeffrey and I were basically looking at the fact that this new generation doesn't seem to have the resilience that our generation had in terms of of uh, 
of the stick to and um, you know, the willing to bounce back and fight mm. and fight the fight the good fight. And we we kind of concluded that part of it was a psychosocial spiritual uh drought mm. in them. You know, it's like if you don't have some foundations that's gonna be able to uh support you uh in your journey. And 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 for us, you know, who've grown up in with moms and dads who just said, no, you're gonna do this. God's going to be with you. He's going to make a way. It made a difference. Mm. I, we're looking at a whole different generation now without roots, without real foundations. And so that's why we wanted to do this show. And that's why we think this show is so important. Excellent. Do Dr. Stewart, you have the mic. We have about 45 minutes so we can be, we can well, meander. No, I mean, just just mm -hmm. to pick up on what Reverend Perry said, I mean, uh, you know, I have been teaching for over 40 years. I got this position uh, recently, a DEI, which means many things to different people, but I've been dedicated to empowering students. That's why I called it, came up this concept of embracement. Mm -hmm. And it's not just enough to admit students to school. They need to be embraced. But I have to tell you, you know, I was, I've been hurt to the quick by the fact that my own daughter enrolled in my school and she had mental health problems and um, eventually ended up passing away. And I was not able to stop it. And that sense of, of frustration and loss has doubled my sense that I've got to be more of a sense of community. Mm. Individual parents can't do it alone. And with all the pressures you're under with your own job and your own family and everything, out here in Santa Barbara in particular, there's no real Black community. And particularly for mixed-race children, uh, my wife is white, um, and, you know, it's just really difficult to find support. And so what do you do? And the song you heard earlier was a song that she uh, uh, recorded called candlelight and I I that gives me some solace because it says in the line look for me in the candlelight and I'm thinking many young people today are looking for something they need a symbol mm. of being able to burn strong and long uh despite the fact that they are in a very inhospitable environment in these universities so I just hope that uh I really am so pleased to hear about the program that uh, Dr. Perry has. I started uh, one called the Benjamin Banneker uh, Quantum Summer Program, two mm. weeks for high school students who are interested in physics to come to Santa Barbara for two weeks, not only to learn about quantum physics, but also to learn about the student services, student support. I kind of knew my daughter was struggling, and so I was trying to like do something that might have been there for her if I had thought about this earlier. So moving forward, I really want to try to empower these young people and to keep one more Black student from being lost mm -hmm. uh, because of the fact that they're not welcomed into these historically and often hysterically white institutions of higher education. Mm -hmm. Reverend Clayton, any thoughts? What you just heard thus far, because a ton of things came to my mind just as, as Je Jeffrey was was speaking, uh, but I want to kind of give people the chance to hear your melodious voice as well this morning. Thank you, Tom, and uh, Dr. Stewart. Uh, 
your work is just tremendous. I, I, I heard some things in your, in those few words that you just spoke. And um, as I was reading, you had uh, opened up a coffee house where people were playing jazz uh, to kind of help the students come together. Um, but music has a way of, of, of healing. Mm -hmm. Music has a way of calming anxieties. And what I want to know from you is, did you actually, could you see the evidence of that uh, when you uh, started that coffee house with, with the jazz music? Yes, yes. And in fact, I must say that the idea for the coffee house came really from my time at Yale. When mm -hmm. I was living in the Yale Divinity School uh, with uh, Reverend Perry and others and the uh, were called Black Seminarians at that time in the 70s, created a coffee house in New Haven. Mm -hmm. And we would have, you know, jazz or Congo drums being played and coffee for the young people. And it's really from the Black Seminarians that I got that sense of, oh, no, we're not just here at Yale. We're connected and have a sense of responsibility for the young people in our community. So in Santa Barbara, I was teaching a class on history of jazz, and I realized that the mostly white students had never actually been to a coffee house or heard jazz. So I got some money, and I just, it's a pop-up. You know, it just, I go in there, and I turn it into a jazz. And I realized there were local musicians, jazz musicians, who would come and, 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 uh, and play, and so one of the things I noticed is that in the beginning of my class, which usually is a quarter, they'd be saying, oh, you know, we got to do this, you know, kind of grumbling about having to do one more thing. But what I noticed is at the end of the class, the last coffee house, usually you have about five or six, certain people would come forward who had been in the background all along. One young woman got up and sang with the band. I didn't even know she could sing. <laughs> uh, she was she was spoken to and she came to me and said, oh, uh, this really touched me. And then at the celebration of life for Cassandra um, several weeks ago that uh, Reverend Perry officiated over, a young woman who had come to the coffee house and was in my class, came to the celebration. I didn't even know she knew about it. And she came and said that, you know, the coffee house had been the only thing that had created a sense of community wow. for her mm. at UCSB, mm. which I was happy for. It was very flattering, but I was also pained that <laughs> my little coffee house was the only thing that she had to hold on to. And this is a brilliant young Vietnamese uh, a woman who was harassed by a, a student, uh, almost virtually imprisoned for mm. a while, and was irreparably damaged, but found a sense of healing in mm. the coffee house. And so I'm trying to work with her to at least so that she can graduate, you know, because there are a lot of young women in particular of color who are not supported too. I think that's an important wow. thing that, that to realize is mm. that the women are taking this hit in some ways very powerfully because of the way in which we still are in a very gendered, we are in a still patriot. I know the young brothers are struggling too, but I think just calling out that young women have a hard way to go today mm 
mm. to find their way in professions that still don't really want them, even mm. though they make a gesture as if they do. Mm. Mm. Reverend so, Perry, I, I can see you're ready to jump in, please. Yeah, yeah. So let me say, you know, we had the coffee house, we had a coffee house in Waterbury, basically. The Ujima Coffee House in Water. Jeffrey would come and play conga drums, and we would have people doing poetry, and we would have spool tables from Con Edison where they could sit around. But the reason we started that coffee house was because we found a disconnect with our youth mm. in terms of like some didn't want to go to church, some went to church because they had to go to church. But also we, we saw a, a, a sense of a lack of community and a lack of historical understanding about who we were. Mm. So Jeffrey, if Jeffrey would note that it, it, with Elaine Locke, it's about that aesthetic. It's about being to reinforce within our people the values that we've brought to civilization and to this country and to the world through our music, through our art, through our word and through our witness. And we realized that young people just didn't have anything to do on the weekends. And so we developed the coffee house. We even had a lady from New Haven, Olga, who uh, had a Jamaican restaurant who came over and cooked an African dish mm. for them. And I think that gave them a sense of culture and community. And unfortunately, we don't have this now. Our young people, they are disassociated. If they're not, I mean, I had my nephews and nieces down for Thanksgiving. Every one of them was on an iPad or an iPhone. Nobody talked to anybody. It was a kind of like disassociation. So how do we bring back community? That's why when I heard about Jeffrey's Coffee House, I kept thinking maybe that's a way that we need to, to reinvent this wheel again. Mm -hmm. And on every campus have something like this, which could also serve as a, um, a catalyst for those who, who needed counseling or those who needed to meet with, you know, other people to share their struggle with, because you know, in 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 in, in the rich schools, when when they have these study groups, that's how those those folk make it. Is they got people from all over coming into that group, adding to the group, making it easier for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. We mm -hmm. don't have that, and we need to develop something like that in terms of of community, and and not to be disassociated from who we are. Mm -hmm. We are still the disinherited in America. We are still those who are institutionally um, pointed out, singled out, and left out. And so it's important that we kind of have these conversations. And I'm so glad that Jeffrey's on because, you know, I don't think that there's a, a school in America that doesn't have this, this problem. And how do we, how do we work together to, to, uh, to fix it? I know that in in Tennessee, Meharry sends its young pre-med students out into the community to talk to high school students mm -hmm. and, and even to serve their parents with, with certain illnesses that they might have or give them an understanding of where clinical research and how it might help them. This is the kind of community base we need to work toward. And I don't know how to do it, but I know it's the, the pieces of the puzzle are out there. We just have to put them together. Indeed. Dr. Seward, because I know you're very much intimately involved with this issue. In, no, in, no. In, I mean, I, I want to completely say that, that I guess it was in 2021 
coming out of the pandemic, uh, we here uh, at UCSB held a, a town hall with the Black students, and we were asking them essentially, you know, how are you doing in the pandemic? They didn't care about that. What they were talking about is the fact that when they were in these classes here, particularly the STEM classes, the science, technology, uh, engineering, and mathematics classes, they were shunned. Um, that when they had group projects, uh, the the white and Asian students didn't want them in their group because they thought they 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 would be a drag. Or the, and then I'm thinking, well. Do they actually know that in physics and in mathematics, some of the greatest minds that have been produced in the United States have been black? Of course, they wouldn't know this from the media. If you watch, for example, Oppenheimer, you don't learn that they were mm -hmm. black scientists, mathematicians. Uh, one man who got a PhD in mathematics at 19 from University of Chicago, who was actually working on uh, the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. This history, this power that we have is what I guess a friend of mine called invisibilized mm. American culture. Uh, mm. You're there, but you're not there. And so we really need a nationwide effort uh, that would connect the work that, you know, uh, Reverend Clayton is doing, Reverend Perry is doing, the work that you're doing to universities. But when you talk to these people at universities, uh, they, they don't really, it's not high on their agenda. I mean, Yale should be the epicenter for this kind of effort. Mm -hmm. uh, I still am fond of Yale, even though they didn't in, in, in admit my daughter, but I got my PhD <laughs> from there. And I have a sense that Yale has always had this potential, but it's so worried about running after Harvard. It's so worried about its position with the donors that it's never actually thinking about its own students of color who are even coming from Connecticut who look to Yale as a symbol of who and what they can become. Mm, mm, mm. Jeffrey, um, some people that are listening to this show, when I'm and I want to take a little digression if I can, Reverend Clayton and Reverend Reverend Perry, and just give Jeffrey a chance to talk about the uh, Elaine Locke, because some people that are listening to this show, they may not be able to spell Pulitzer, not know what it means, and certainly not understand the international esteem of winning the Pulitzer Prize. So uh, I know you're yes, probably- This was actually a project, again, I started at Yale. Uh, it just took me, you know, most of my life to finish it. I It was assigned to me by Dr. John uh, Blassingame, who I think was the first tenured uh, black professor in the history department at Yale. Uh, I came there in the 70s and uh, he talked. He told me about Alan Locke. I didn't know anything about Locke, and he knew him from Howard, where he had taught for over forty years. Uh, Locke was a philosopher. He was the first black uh, person to get a PhD in philosophy from Harvard. But he didn't really devote himself primarily to philosophy. Of course, philosophy was always part of it. It was to the arts. He felt like black people were an artistic people who had something to bring to America that America didn't have. Mm. is a, an aesthetic temperament, a musical quality. Uh, and of course, we know this because every time you turn on the Grammys and whatever, you see a few Black people and then you see a lot of white people who sound like Black people. <laughs> so it's not only that we have actually brought this, but we've infused it into America. I mean, you know, all you have to do is go and listen to Russian rock music and you see what the absence of a black mm. tradition is. 
Mm. I mean, it's almost unlistenable, you know, sorry, mm. Russians. But nevertheless, you know, so he dedicated his life to that. And he also taught at Howard University. And that time, Howard was really the center of Black uh, uh, thought. Uh, but he also started the, uh, the Neighborhood Chicago Arts Society. Mm. He basically wanted art in the community. He actually hired artists to teach art to people in the Chicago area, a uh, way of giving them a livelihood, but also spreading this art because he felt like art was in us. And so that writing that biography took most of my life to do. And I actually, when I finished it, it was published The New Negro, The Life of Alan Lott. I was so glad it was finished. That was all I wanted. It was finished. <laughs> but then I was blessed to get the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. And my daughter, actually, when we had to go to the National Book Award ceremony, you don't know whether you're going to get picked. Hmm. I had to fly to New York, and I took my family, and I was sitting there, and I said, I know I'm not going to win. And she said, oh, you're going to win it. She had an intuitive sense that went beyond mine. Hmm. And uh, I did win it, and it was probably one of the happiest days of my life. Hmm. Hmm. Reverend Perry? Oh yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I was thinking as Jeffrey was talking about his daughter and her thirst to be, uh, to be in medicine, and um, he was telling me that when she was young, uh, other kids would want these other fancy toys, and she would want one of these little anatomy sets or mm. doctor sets, and I, and I just said that you know it was, it, it it's, it's, it's amazing that that we all have a gift that God touches us to do mm. what we do and she understood this early on and it's just so unfortunate that um that the the systems in place did not come to her aid and support her in this project mm. and I, I don't know whether or not if, if, if he had been in tennessee or in 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 mississippi or in harlem if it might have made a difference i don't know that I just know that the systems didn't work and that we need to find ways of making it work wherever uh, we find young people with talent and who understand that they have a gift. How do we harness that for them? What can we do to help them? Yeah, I, I agree. And I uh, think that I think a, the church an expanded ministry of the church may be the answer that somehow in we need to actually see the church maybe more like it was thought of in the 19th century it was a place where the first schools for black people uh basically were in churches hmm. uh, in the south uh during the civil rights movement the first freedom schools were usually held in the back of the churches because of course you couldn't get uh the uh state officials to educate black people. Maybe the church is the means for us to kind of recoup and re-educate black humanity. Uh, and it needs to be funding for this. I mean, I think that that uh, at one point, uh, people invested in the church in a way that isn't happening mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. uh, in the same way. Uh, and particularly for young people, Schools have so much difficulty with young people now, but they don't turn to the church. They don't actually enlist the church with so-called problem students 
whose problem may be that they have this lack of a spiritual connection uh, in their life, coming from broken homes, coming from homes that don't support them, even if they're not broken. So mm -hmm. to me, that's what I'm looking for now. I'm looking for what are the practical institutions mm. that we could utilize to kind of turn this around? Because working as individuals, it's really, really difficult. Mm. Reverend Clayton? That was a strong comment. I, I That was really strong. I appreciate mm -hmm. that, those words. Uh, Dr. Stewart, would you be kind enough to give a word of encouragement to our listeners, uh, those individuals who may doubt their abilities yes. and, and they, they, they fear certain things uh, in the educational area, it, even though they have the gifts and the talents and the confidence, but that somehow they feel as though they don't measure up. Mm. Yeah, I, I, this is the thing that haunts me all the time, this question, because Cassandra was enormously gifted, and I and her mother and people were constantly telling her that she was gifted, but there was a voice. I think that uh, Reverend Perry said that the devil sent her darkness. Uh, you know, a lot of our transformative young people are stopped by messages and talk, self-talk in particular, mm. that they engage in that's reinforced by the internet. Mm. So you you get on the internet and then, you know, do you look like such and such a person? Do you look like this person? Well, I don't. Well, though, you know, I noticed that she was putting on makeup and trying to look like these various people, which on one hand was cool, but on another hand, I think was a sign early on that I didn't see that she didn't see herself as beautiful. Mm. I think that's the thing that I'm trying to hold on to now is the sense of beauty. Mm. And if you are struggling, just remember you are beautiful and not necessarily in the white obsessed society that we are, 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 are visited with. Because if you actually look behind the curtain of these celebrities and other people, these influencers, <laughs> their lives are miserable. Mm. They're up here influencing you, and they're the ones that need some influence. Mm. So you are, you know, we used to in the 60s say that, you know, black people were kings and queens of Africa. And we all knew that all of them couldn't be kings mm -hmm. and queens from Africa. <laughs> but, but there is a queenliness, there is mm. a queenness that's in black people that is often not acknowledged. And, you know, increasingly... This scourge of I'm not good enough or I don't measure up or uh, whatever is also among our white brothers and sisters, too. Mm. I mean, so we it's really a generational crisis mm. we are in right now. And the key thing is you cannot allow yourself to be a casualty of what is an information war mm. going on in the world today a war against young people and their gifts. You cannot afford to let yourself be a casualty to that. You have to fight that fight using your minister, using your, your parents. One of the things I see with like young people is that going through that adolescent transition, you have the feeling that your parents and everyone is against you. 
Uh, and the truth is that that's not true. Mm. They're struggling too. So how do we find a way to open conversations between mothers and daughters and fathers and sons uh, about the struggle you're going through as a parent and share that with your children so they see you as a human being, right? Mm. And not just the mother or their father. We really need uh, a renewed sense of inter inner family conversation and community. That is something that's largely absent because let's face it, everybody's working two or three jobs. They're running here and there. They're under stress. Even though the economy is supposedly pretty good, it's actually often not good for us. How do we find that space of coming together with our young people and young people reach out. I think that's the one thing I would say to you, reach mm -hmm. out. You know, I realize in retrospect that often my daughter wouldn't say to me things that she wanted me to say to stop doing that annoyed her. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't say to me what she actually needed because of who she thought I was. And in fact, now my whole life is about I wish you had said something. I wish you had sent me a text. I wish you had told me, stop doing this. I really need this. And then parents have to listen and not feel like, oh, I'm being manipulated again by them. Or, oh, they just want some money or whatever. You know, we mm -hmm. have a way mm -hmm. stigmatizing ourselves mm -hmm. and stigmatizing our children uh, that I think is hurting their ability to communicate with us. Hmm. Reverend Perry. Oh yeah, I I was uh, I was thinking of this story about this father who had a son who was dealing with drugs, and the boy stole from the father, and the father didn't say anything initially, and then finally they were at dinner one day, and and the boy had had subsequently found God, and he was sitting at the table, and his father, you know, had asked him again, you know, something about the things that were stolen. He said, I don't know anything about it. And then when he went upstairs, he thought about it. He said, I, I got to go and tell my dad what I did. And his father said, I know. He said, but why? He said, that what I don't know is why you didn't come to me for help. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's mm. like, if you needed money, if you, why didn't, why didn't you, if you need help, why don't you go to the people who, who are in your life who will help you? Mm -hmm. it's just, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's amazing. Um, you know, I think, Jeffrey, it's a crisis of culture. And Niebuhr talked about it, but it, but it really is a crisis of culture because when you look, uh, one of the things that we did in the inner city is, other than the coffee house, was that we had this program called Boys to Men because we realized that Black men were an endangered species in America. I mean, they're they're more likely to be arrested. They're more likely to be shot. They're more likely not to finish high school or finish college. They're more likely to have more than one, uh, more than one biological family. I mean, they'll have kids over here and the kids over there. They're more likely to get caught up in drugs and go to jail. I ran a fatherhood program, and I kept thinking that the only way I can help these dads is by helping their children, not to mm -hmm. be like them. Mm -hmm. So I started this program where you know I gave them an affirmation about who they were. And, uh, you know, like I am somebody, Jesse Jackson, William Holmes Borders out of Atlanta. Uh, 
you, you have to give them an affirmation so that they can feel good about themselves. And then you got to teach them about the value of their history. So they'll they have something to stand on when people point at them and say, you have nappy hair, big lips, or you're ignorant, or you're 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 a hero of wood and drawer of water. You've got to give them some history, some real history that they're not teaching in our schools, except in one little paragraph that talks about the, the Civil War, to help them. And then you got to help them to see what happens to our families when when we allow them to be distorted, broken, and um and victimized by TV, movie, or society to say, oh, you don't have to, you don't have to marry anybody. You just have a baby. And that mm. makes you a father. That makes you a daddy. It doesn't. Mm. You don't have the responsibility. And and I think that that's not that that for us, it was handed down. We watched our fathers work sun up to sundown. We listened to them when they said, you boy, you better do this. We don't have that anymore. We don't have the role models. We don't, our institutions, like even our churches, our young people are going to church anymore. I wish I could tell you how to get them back. Uh, but Jeffrey's correct. We used to have scholarship programs, Christmas programs where the kids would get up and do oratorical stuff and had built up a sense of self-confidence in themselves. But we're warned against the we're warned against culture. We're warned against iPhones. I asked twelve kids in my in my church what they wanted for Christmas. I thought I could help them. Eleven <laughs> said they wanted iPhone. <laughs> I said, you don't know how much an iPhone costs. So I had to tell them Sunday. Said, listen, baby, I'd love to get you an iPhone, but you know you got to have a contract. <laughs> you got to have a carrier. Um, and and this is something that mom and dad need to work out with you. I want to help you get some books to help you learn. I, I want to help you get a scholarship fund set up in your name. I want to help you where you're failing in school to find somebody that can help tutor you. We don't have this mechanism in place anymore in our churches because our churches have been abandoned through COVID. Our churches are struggling with how to keep the doors open. And for the Amy Zion churches, you got to pay claims. You got to go to assessments here and assessments there. We do not have the resources. And yet, if we if they put the resources into the churches, I think our students would be stronger. There'd be more of our kids in college and universities. Crime would be down because we would have given them what, what we learned Right is right and wrong is wrong. You reap what you sow. We learn this as kids. Nobody's teaching us anymore. And so we suffer. Our exposure programs now look like Jeffrey, even with Yale, it's for the elite minority. But we, uh, I wanted to start it when they were like in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, to start there, because I think that's really where we mm. need to start. Mm with mm. giving them some affirmations and getting them in the, the knowledge that these things are out there. You don't have to be a doctor. You can be a phlebotomist. You can be a um, chiropractor. You can be anything. You can be a researcher. You can be an administrator. We've got to start early and giving these kids dreams that they can hang on to. Not dreams to be deferred, but dreams that they can hang on mm. to and that can can take on flesh. And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm I'm still doing the exposure program, because if I can just help one person, I'm happy. It's better than no helping no one. And that's what we need to do. We need to we need to work 
as hard as we can, even if we can't save everybody, we can at least try to save one somebody. Indeed. G gentlemen, we have about, I'll, I'll call, actually, I want to call everybody M Mighty Gents. So, so Mighty Gents, we have about 11 more minutes and whatever's on your heart, mind, and soul to share. I'm, I'm tempted, uh, Jeffrey, to ask you about your, your, your most recent book, because it seems to me that everyone is, you in particular, have not just, uh, you're not just bemoaning your circumstance, but you're, 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 you're fertilizing your field. You're, 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 you're fertilizing the future generations. You're planting seeds for knowledge and, and creativity and, and inspiration. So maybe if we can just spend a few seconds for you to share about your most recent book, because it seems to me that it, it fits into this, this self-esteem quandary that we still seem to be stuck in and also giving hope and inspiration and, and documenting that, uh, people are not alone, that we that we share a collective destiny. Yes, well, this is a project that came out of the National Gallery of Art that wanted to draw attention to the Washington Renaissance. You know, we always hear a lot about the Harlem Renaissance, mm -hmm. but there was a Washington, D.C. Renaissance as well that was largely visual arts, came out of the founding of the art department at Howard University in uh, 1922, and Alma Thomas was its first graduate, but it had a slew of people, and Locke was involved with that too. But we started talking about what was it like being in Howard and being in, in Washington, D.C., and being a, an artist. We brought together all these people and produced a book called Beauty Born of Struggle, mm. Art of Black Washington. And the idea that you know, beauty is often something that's thought of as very pristine and perfect and 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 uh, sublime, as Kant said and others. But beauty often comes from the ground up, too. Mm. Beauty often comes from struggle. There's a beauty in your struggle, uh, whether you succeed or fail. That struggle itself is very important. And so that's the title that I came up with to put on this is a series of articles about Howard University, but also artists like Ed Love, who was a black artist who was born in Los Angeles and taught at Howard University and used to make these large sculptures, mm -hmm. metal sculptures, and he would put them in the black community and they were like gods these mm -hmm. godlike sculptures that he would put up to inspire the people uh, to, to essentially greatness. He actually believed that uh, um, the Star Wars, some of the Star Wars uh, characters were based on his sculptures. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's true or not, <laughs> but they were abstract Afrofuturist struggles, mm -hmm. uh, sculptures uh, built out of metal. Uh, one was seven feet tall, another was eight feet tall to try to give the community a sense of it, the, the, the grandiosity of, it, of, it, of talent. Yes. And I was really inspired by him. I included him in my first book, 1001 Things Everyone Should Know About uh, African-American History. But this one, I really featured him about his struggle. But I have to say, he had a struggle too. He taught at Howard University. Uh, for a while, he was supported. But then after a while, he wasn't supported. This is often what happens in these institutions is that people turn against you. And then he went down to Florida and started a whole program really for youth to have an art uh, school that would take high school students all the way through to getting their BAs. Hmm. And in the beginning, it was very, you know, a lot of energy. Then people essentially turned against him. So this is one of the struggles that I'm really exploring in my next book, which is uh, 
uh, called Free Fall, which is really about the black artist, black intellectual in America. Mm. What is it like for us to be out here struggling with little or no support from our communities? One of the things I've been concerned about is the alienation between the black intellectuals and the black church. Mm. You very seldom see black intellectuals featuring or talking about or engaging with black ministers. Uh, you know, you very see, seldom see. I mean, Cornell West is the one exception, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so this is another thing. We we imbibe these distinctions, mm. right? And that I'm this and I'm better than them and all of that. And that is actually undoing us. Mm. You know, that's actually, I talk to my daughter sometimes. She said, oh, well, you know, that person's simple. And I said, well, maybe they are simple. Maybe they're not as complex as you, but maybe they have something to offer you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we can't get too high and mighty and not consider that all of us are going to end up in the same place at one point, at one mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So why not come together now? Absolutely. R Reverend Clayton? I'm feeling this. Um, wow. I, I, I can listen to Dr. Stewart <laughs> for the rest of the morning. <laughs> well, you knew I used my time in the divinity school to affect. <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> Reverend Clayton, I'll give you give you a minute to thought the thing because I guess wanted to say, Jeffrey, I've listened to some of your about four or five of your um, your presentations at the at the, the Schomburg and, and elsewhere, and Reverend uh, Doctor Stewart has has had to go up to some of the most prominent interviewers in America, some of the most pro prominent interviewers in America, and he has this is just subjective he has surpassed them whenever you hear him talk versus the the most some of the most prominent interviewers in america i'm thinking particularly jeffrey of your schomburg interview uh he he puts them not to shame but he lets the audience know that you've come to hear me and not to hear the interviewer and so uh, um, I, I i guess i guess I have to put that on the record it's and people can guess google your name and google youtube and and look at the interviews themselves but but reverend clayton Yes, thank you again, Tom. Uh, Dr. Stewart, there is so much talk about social determinants of health today. Yes. But how, how do you think, or what are your thoughts about universities really looking into it in terms of uh, the students and how social determinants are affecting them as they go through their uh, educational journey. No, I think that's something that we ought to do. Uh, most of the times in these universities, the focus today is not on the student. So they are, they're concerned about donors. We see this with this whole thing going on with Harvard, where the donors are saying, well, we won't support it. Everyone's worried about the donors. And then if they're not worried about the donors, they're worried about their research. But you're right, our students should be our focus because I think black people have a different relationship to the students in the sense that they are the future talented 10th. Mm. The boys talked about, we have an investment and need for them to do well that's different than perhaps other communities. So you're right, the social determinants. I'm actually working with a doctor out here, uh, Dr. Stanley Frencher, who's a Yale uh, 
uh, uh, Yale, I think he was a Yale, uh, did his residency at Yale and was involved at, in the New Haven community about looking at the social determinants of health, why certain people have more struggle, and then trying to you know, meet those. Just because you have that social determinant doesn't mean that you're determined to be sick. You mm. can't change the context. You can't change your behavior. This is one of the things that Black people, I think, need to, you know, we need to exercise more. We need to eat better. We need to do those things that the, the early in the part of the century, the 20th century, and at the Tuskegee uh, medical uh, program they had about teaching Black people what to eat, how to eat healthy. Because basically what, you know, I know people are critical of Booker T. Washington, but basically Booker T. Washington was saying, nobody else is going to help you. <laughs> so you better help yourself. And I think that's another thing that needs to be strengthened, the self-help, the communal self-help mm -hmm. philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, but I agree with you that, that uh, there are social determinants, but you can rise over them through consciousness. That's one of the things that I really like about Du Bois is he always uh, focused on consciousness. And mm. My mother believed this very strongly, that your consciousness is the most important thing about you, mm. that you can actually change your outcomes by how you think. And I mm. think that's one of the things we need to change how we think. And perhaps that'll affect the social determinants won't be so determining mm. as mm -hmm. they have in the past. Yeah, let, let me say, I think that one of the things that we need to start teaching our young people is how to think critically. Mm. I remember my daughter came home with some C's when she was in elementary school. And she said, are you disappointed? I said, not really. I said, I'm, I'd be more concerned about what you think and your ability to critically think about what the teacher is teaching you than about the grades that they give you. Because, mm -hmm. you know, teachers can teach you anything and brainwash you in their teaching. But if you can think critically, then you're gonna be, you're gonna be able to um, handle life situations as you go on. Mm -hmm. The thing with, Bannock, with Dr. Stewart's Banniger program, what I wanted to lift up was, that is something I think that we could do nationwide. And I was hoping that maybe Yale could do something like that, that we really need to be intentional about it and maybe start a program where we can deal with inner city youth with the zip code thing that's going on now because you are your zip code can determine your, your life, your legacy, and your longevity. Dr. Frencher did come. We did meet with Dr. Frencher who came to deal with black men with prostate cancer. And we sat down with him and we gave him some ideas of how, how we could reach uh, men outside the barbershop. We said, no, you don't have to go to the barbershop, go to the beauty shop, get the wives, get the daughters. And so working together in terms of community, I think if we put our minds together and, 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 and this consciousness, this black mm -hmm. consciousness, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that we can make a, a monumental difference in the future of, how, of outcomes for our young people. We have about two more minutes, everyone. So I want to give uh, Reverend Clayton a minute or so for a last word, Reverend Perry, and then conclude with, uh, with Dr. Stewart. I guess I want to mention in terms of coffee shops, but let, let's lift up a Reverend Cleveland Thornhill's name as well. Of course, if, if memory serves, the one of the coffee shops was at the Varick when he was he was there. Uh, but Reverend Clayton, give you kind of a, a minute or so for kind of a last word, and then, and then Reverend uh, Perry and 
and uh, Reverend Reverend Doctor Senior Emeritus Stewart. <laughs> I'll, I'll, well, well, <laughs> all right now, <laughs> Reverend Clayton, Doctor Stewart. I just want to take this moment to thank you for sharing with us this morning. Uh, you have enlightened us. You have encouraged us. You have blessed us, and we wish you the best on your next journey, whatever yes. that journey may be. Thank yes. you so much for being with yes. us today. Yes. Reverend Perry? Well, I just want to say that when we, Jeffrey was in divinity school with us, we don't know how he got in. <laughs> he didn't go through the dean, but he was there and uh, he inspired us and we inspired him. In fact, we gave him a sermon that he never forgot. And that if we, if he was called on to preach right now, I tell you what the title would be. When life tumbles in, what then? Hmm. <laughs> and and that's really what I'm going through right now. Yes. If life did tumble in on me when when it took my daughter. And uh, I'm right now struggling to stay on purpose hmm. because it it makes when you lose somebody so close to you like that, it it, it makes you question everything you've been doing. Yes. And I realize that I do need to become more open, a better listener, and more humble about what it is that I've been put here to do and to try to do it in her name. Yes, well, uh, let's let's conclude on that. We may not have a chance, uh, Jeffrey, to play much of the song because we're bumping up to the next hour. That's okay. That's but, all right. But, just, but, the candlelight one is really the one. All right. That, uh, I hope that people out there who've lost someone, Cassandra said, light a candle and that person will come to that candle, to that candle light. Mm. And you can have a feeling of communion, even though they're not. Excellent. Mighty gents. Thank you so much, Harry. Thanks, you're, in, you're included in that mighty gent for, as well. And uh happy holiday, happy early holidays to everyone. All right. Thank you so much. Take, take care. the book of your mind.
you guys. I'm going to sign off. Thank All you right, so yeah. much. Thank, Thank you. you.